If you have a Bible nearby and you want to look at 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings 5, there's a story there that I'd like to consider this morning. I'm not gonna take the time at the beginning of the service to read it because it's a long story and I plan to tell you the whole story anyway. So you're not gonna miss any details, it's all there. But if you wanna refer to it uh, while I'm speaking this morning, uh, that's perfectly fine. This story in scripture, 2 Kings 5, is only possible because of a series of unfortunate events. Unfortunate, depending on your perspective and, and your side of the situation. Here's the story. At some point, there has been a violent raid and a young girl has been taken from an Israeli city as a slave. If her parents are still alive, they are grieving her loss every day. Think of the pain of losing a daughter to the enemy. We don't have the ability to understand situations like this. The United States has not been raided in this way. Still, the girl is serving in a foreign household. And I wonder, what is she thinking day after day? Is she thinking, how do I make the best of this situation? Is she thinking, well, at least I'm lucky to be alive and to have food and drink and a place to sleep? Is she wondering if she has any prospects for the future? A slave for a husband maybe, or, or simply a life of service? Is there, is there any hope? for her to return to her homeland? According to the story, she somehow manages to enter the life of her new master's household and perhaps begins to care for her mistress so that when her mistress's husband is ill, she offers what she believes might be of help. This is somewhat unexpected. Why take the risk? Why say anything in her situation? Much of this story is going to be unexpected. Here's the larger setting in which this story rests. Syria and Israel are enemies. There is warfare and strife between them. Naaman is the commander of the Syrian army. He's the Syrian king's right-hand man. Elisha, on the other hand, is the prophet of God in Israel. King Jehoram of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. You remember from history that Israel is divided into two, 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. This is Judah. This is the northern kingdom of 10 tribes. He's the king of this group up here. So Jehoram is the king whose scripture says, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Elisha the prophet, the true prophet of God, following in the order of Elijah, has little use for this king. In fact, the last time Jehoram went to ask something of Elisha, this is what Elisha said to him. Were it not that I have regard for the king of Judah, I would give you neither a look nor a glance. 
These are not close friends. So there's a tense situation in the northern kingdom. The true prophet of God and the evil king do not see eye to eye because the king is not faithful to the God of Israel. But the story of Naaman will provide an opportunity for the king of Israel to see the glory of God if he's willing to see it. This story is full of unexpected happenings and reversals. Naaman, the captain of the army of Syria, has contracted leprosy. This is a frightening disease that was barely understood in ancient times. Quarantine and isolation was the only treatment which led painfully to a slow death. But the king of Syria doesn't want to lose his captain. And his captain wants to go to the prophet in Israel because some slave girl has told his wife that there's a glimmer of hope if he can just get over to see the true prophet in Israel. I mean, it's surprising that Naaman's willing to trust the slave girl who came from the enemy. I mean, why, why would he do that? At, the only thing I can come up with is desperation, right? You get to the place and the diagnosis of a disease where there's no hope left, and you're willing to try anything. Even the advice of a slave girl, who is probably not your best friend. So the king of Syria sends a lavish gift, something like a million dollars in silver, and a letter to the king of Israel, who is not his ally, asking for a favor. Well, that's unexpected. I mean, why ask an enemy for a favor? It's also unexpected to assume that an enemy would even consider granting a favor. I mean, wouldn't the king of Israel rather see the captain of his enemy's army dead rather than grant a favor to see him healed? But the king of Syria seems to be making some assumptions too. One of the hugest assumptions is how on earth can the king of Assyria assume the king of Israel really can do anything about this? There's no known cure for leprosy. Why make that assumption? He's also assuming that the king of Israel can command the prophets to do his bidding. Does the king of Syria know that Jehoram and Elisha aren't exactly on speaking terms? The king of Syria clearly does not understand the relationship between the kings of Israel and the prophets. Well, Jehoram, the king of Israel, reads the letter that Naaman presents to him from the king of Syria and immediately tears his clothes in mourning and desperation. And he knows right away, he says, this is a trap. This is a trap. The Syrians want an excuse to attack us. And they are creating a reason. There's nothing I can do to cure Naaman. This is impossible. Everybody ought to know that. But the Syrians will say that I refuse to help them. And so they'll use that as a reason to attack me. I mean, it sounds a little bit like Vladimir Putin's claim that there are Nazis in the Ukraine. It's ridiculous. But it provides all the excuse necessary for violence. And that's what the king of Israel is thinking. 
So the king of Israel is frustrated, frightened. He's in a jam. He tears his clothes in mourning. And Elisha hears about it all. So he sends the king a message. This is chapter five, verse eight. Why have you torn your clothes? Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Here's the heart of the story. Syria, in a warlike relationship with Israel, is about to learn that not only is there a prophet in Israel, but there is a God in Israel. I mean, presumably, Nathan could pray to the God of Syria, one Rimmon by name. Perhaps he's already done that with no answer. Maybe he hasn't bothered due to his, position, his suspicion that Rimmon doesn't answer any prayers anyway. But when you think about this, what are the implications for Israel if the leader of their enemy has a profound experience with the power of God? That's gotta be good for Israel, right? I mean, Naaman will think twice before he leads an army into Israel, don't you think? I mean, he knows, Naaman is going to know that God dwells in Israel. And if he's the right man, of, right hand man of the king of Syria, I suspect he would argue for some other course than to attack Israel in the future. But I'm getting ahead of myself, especially since the process by which Naaman gets this knowledge again, isn't exactly straightforward. Naaman the proud gets sent to Elisha's house, the prophet. He drives up with his horses and his late model chariot. I suspect he calls out, has a servant to run up to the door, knock on Elisha's door, call him out. But Elisha won't come out. He's not coming out. We don't know where he is in the house, but he's not coming out. And Elisha just sends a simple servant out to the captain of the enemy's armies and says this, chapter five, verse 10, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. That's the information Naaman needs, that's what he came to hear and now that he's heard, heard it, he is furious. He is furious. The prophet never even bothered to come out of his house. I mean, Naaman had very different expectations for this trip. He wanted the prophet to stand in front of him, wave his hand, say some magic hocus pocus words, and all of a sudden, bingo, the leprosy would be gone. That's what he expected, and he got none of that. All he got was some low life servant coming out and giving him news he didn't want. And there was no way that the mighty Naaman was going to demean himself and step into that muddy, awful Jordan River when there were many much nicer and cleaner rivers to wash in back home. Why would he humble himself to that? That's ridiculous. And he won't even have the decency to come out and tell me himself? He's just gonna humiliate me at a distance? No way, and he leaves. Now think about the, the succession. He's followed the advice of a slave girl, went to the king a million bucks later to the king of Israel. No help there, tension in the palace, 
over to the prophet. Prophet says a simple thing, and he's like, no way. And having done all of that, he just gets mad and leaves. He takes his ball and goes home. He's not having any of this. But once again in the story, in a somewhat unexpected way, um, something different happens. I wonder how like Naaman we are. We don't get what we want, or we don't get what we expect, or we don't get what we think we need or our kids need, or worse, we get what we want but not in the way that we expect it, and so we rant on social media, we scream, we shout, we pitch a fit, we throw in the towel. I mean, after all, we know best in every situation and things ought to happen in the way that we know they should. Missing from the equation is humility. Missing is flexibility. Missing is openness to new ways or new paths. Missing is the openness in our spirit to allow God to speak into our situation. After all, anything that challenges my expectations, my sensibilities, my cultural norms, anything like that must be stupid or wrong. So Naaman is leaving town, but once again, a servant comes to the rescue. We don't know anything about this servant, nothing. He picks his time well, apparently, and has the courage to say things to Naaman while Naaman is angry. I'm hopeful that there are people in your life, friends, who you've given permission to say things to you when you're angry so that they know you won't vent back on them if they challenge you in your rage. It's hard, isn't it? I can't say I'm great at that. I mean, when I've got a head of steam up and I'm angry, I really don't want to hear the opposing opinion right then. But if we are wise, we will grant permission to at least a few people in our lives to say to us, are you thinking straight today? And whether the servant had that kind of relationship with Naaman that he could speak that way to his master, or whether he just felt like it was worth his life to try. We don't know. All we get are the servant's words. This is chapter five, verse 13. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? This is the second time a servant saves Naaman's life. Fortunately, Naaman listens, humbles himself, washes seven times in the Jordan, and is cleansed from his leprosy. Verse 15, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. 
you might think that's the end of it. Naaman has learned his lesson, so to speak. He has recognized that healing has come from the God of Israel. And so he's coming back to pay for it. Elisha is not having any of that. No gift will be accepted. Elisha will not allow Naaman to believe that the blessing of God is something to be bought and sold. Doesn't work like that. The blessing of God is for the children of God, for those who follow God, never bought and sold. The lesson had been learned. Syria now knows that the one true God is Israel's God. And Naaman knows as well, since he takes back, the scripture says, two donkeys loads worth of soil from Israel in anticipation of building a holy shrine to the God of Israel back in his homeland. As I think about this story, it seems to me there are at least three lessons here. And I would encourage you to listen for the voice of the Spirit to discern which of these might be for you. The first is a question. How do you stay faithful to God when your prospects have diminished? The slaves in this story have had to try to find a way to exist within the limitations of their circumstances. Naaman, the mighty man of valor, he's gonna to need to humble himself and wash in a muddy river in front of his entourage if he's ever gonna have any hope of a future. For some of us, the circumstances of our lives have placed us in a smaller circle with fewer prospects than we expected or hoped. Perhaps the reversals are financial. Perhaps the reversals are relational. Perhaps the reversals are rooted in our health or vitality. Things happen in life that take away or diminish our prospects and we must find a way to deal with that. Sometimes the problem isn't so much that we experience reversals, but, but that from our perspective, others have gotten an unfair advantage over us. Others have gotten resources that aren't available to us. Maybe we just think that we always have bad luck. I mean, how do you cope with disappointments like that? I would suggest that if you will allow it, if you will look for opportunities to serve others in the midst of your disappointment, God will still find meaningful ways to use you and will give you opportunities to serve him within his kingdom. You must simply be humble enough to accept these ways and flexible enough to step into the future God has for you regardless of your previous expectations. The serving girl opens a pathway for Naaman to learn the lesson he needs to learn. And it is a lesson that leads to greater security for the whole nation of Israel. She is in the right place at the right time. 
the servant of Naaman, speaks the words that strike Naaman's heart, giving birth to humility in Naaman that allows him to be healed. This servant's role is hugely important. We like to call ourselves servants of the Most High, but are we always particularly comfortable when asked to serve? Are we willing to be placed in humble positions in order to have the opportunity to serve from those positions? Or are we always crying for justice every time we're placed in a humble position? Some of us end up in humble places just because we're growing older. Don't be discouraged by approaching age. We can still be used in whatever position we find ourselves in. I guess I would also add that if we allow ourselves to be consumed by rage, as Naaman was, it is unlikely that we will ever see the hand of God move. And if we ever allow ourselves to live disconnected to the resources of God, the way the king of Israel did, we doom ourselves to live in fear and suspicion. You pick the lesson you need. Trust that God can use you no matter your circumstances. Or release the rage of unmet expectations. Or get reconnected to the resources of God that are in Christ Jesus so that you can see the future that he has for you. I trust the Spirit to speak and to apply his word to our hearts today. But I do know that there is an inevitability about this particular lesson. The inevitability is this. We're all getting older. And the older we get, especially as we approach old age, the circle of our lives decreases. We can't do as much. We can't accomplish as much. And as we get older, that circle gets smaller and smaller. And every human who lives to old age has to deal with that. There's going to come a day when someone's going to take your car keys. And you're going to say, unless you were wise enough to give them up when they should have been given up, you're going to say, but wait a second, I need my independence. You know, there's going to come a day when you really want to kneel down at the altar and pray, but your knees just don't bend anymore. And you'll have to learn a new way to pray. This, this encroaching smallness is sort of like the mouth of a funnel that gets smaller and smaller until we are eventually, as children of God, released into the vastness of all that God has prepared for us. I don't know if this is God's way of teaching us humility so that we're prepared to enter his kingdom. I don't understand that. 
But I know we have to contend with this, all of us. And some of us much, much earlier than others. And so the question is, will we trust God? Will we allow him to use us as we are, where we are within the circumstances that are ours? And will we refuse to lose hope that he's at work, that he is with us, that he is for us, and that we can be useful to him in all of our days? May the Holy Spirit apply his word to us today. Let's pray together and we'll, we'll sing a song together in closing. Heavenly Father, teach us the lessons of Naaman and of Jehoram, of Elisha, and of the servants. And grant us the grace to rest in you and to trust you. Grant us the grace to be open to you that we might hear your voice and now how best we can serve you during each of our days. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together, Teach Me Your Way, O Lord. Teach me your way, O Lord, teach me your way, your guiding grace afford, teach me your way, help me to walk aright, more by faith, less by sight, lead me with heavy light. Teach me your way. When I am sad at heart, teach me your way. When earthly joys depart, teach me your way. In hours of loneliness, in times of dire distress, in failure or success, teach me your way. When doubts and fears arise, teach me your way. When storms o'erspread the skies, teach me your way. Shine through the cloud and rain, through sorrow, toil, and pain. Make thou my pathway plain, teach me your way. Long as my life shall last, teach me your way. Where'er my thought be cast, teach me your way. Until the race is run, until the journey's done, until the crown is won, teach me your way.
before I pronounce the benediction, let me just give you one quick reminder. We do have folks among us who are highly sensitive to perfumes and colognes. So we would request that you avoid using those on Sunday mornings just so that everyone has the opportunity to participate with us. And now may the Spirit guide you as you serve Him. And may you see with the eyes of faith all that God will enable you to do as you trust Him. To His glory now and forever. Amen.